thank you, Stephen. It's so awesome to have talented people in our community that can just sort of step in and just lead worship, do all kinds of cool things. Next week, we have another unique opportunity to hear from another talented person in our community that's going to be uh, doing some stuff up here, which will be real exciting. So it's just cool, cool to have a community that sort of, this is our, all our responsibility, worshiping together. So we're really super grateful. So Meredith and I haven't really been, we haven't really known what to do with ourselves. Our kids are at camp. And so uh, we took them last Saturday. We actually go pick them up next weekend. It's been two weeks without them, which on some level is like incredible. And on some levels like, hi, how are you? Good to see you. Nice to meet you. My name is Tripp. We ate dinner at 7.30, which is like what normal people do. It's a miracle. We've never had dinner past 5.15 in our lives since we had kids. So, you know, we thought about going to Denny's and that whole deal, but we've been eating at normal times. It's been kind of fun. But I, I, I posted the other day, we got our first letter from Cooper, right? So Cooper's my nine-year-old, and uh, we only got one letter. In fact, Meredith sent them both, with, I mean, like, because she's such an incredible mom, with like the perfect little stationary box, with all pre-addressed envelopes, one for like every day, you know, and they're all stamped and... There's all these glitter pins for Haley and, you know, Sharpies for Cooper or whatever. And so she had it all laid out, and we got one letter from, from Cooper. And I posted a picture of it. I brought it because it's, it's just brilliant. But this is what it is, right? Um, it's it basically about 15 scratch outs and a bunch of misspellings, and it says this. Hi, Mom. I miss you already. This was like day one. Tell Haley I miss her too. I play a pretty big role in this kid's life, right? Every day I'm driving him, I'm coaching all the sports teams, I'm doing all those things. I can't even get a shout-out, like not even like a, Haley is at camp with him. <laughs> Tell her yourself. So this is what we've heard from our awesome children. It's great. So we got a little talking to when he gets home about dad and what I do for this family and my name in the stinking letter. It's in the mail, right? He didn't even put his name on the bottom. Who all, who all knows Kika? His best friend write it. Hey, will you write my mom a letter real quick? He must have been in a hurry, too. So anyway, they're there. We're, we're on our own. It's been good. But we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, it's an honor to just sort of be able to be together and worship. We've been kind of exploring the book of Luke all summer. Uh, really in just sort of a way of challenging our whole community to get involved in God's Word together. And so we've put some resources together to have everybody reading together. We've got our life groups going through the same material. And, and this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 11. But don't turn there because we're actually going somewhere else. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 11. Um, and, and Jesus has begun to teach on prayer. And so Matthew chapter 5 and 6 um, echo a lot of Luke chapter 10 and 11. And, and so we're going to actually jump to Matthew this morning to look at, at Jesus teaching on prayer there. It's actually the same text, but Matthew's is a little bit deeper, a little bit richer. It's the same expression, but I want to actually look at that. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 by way of Luke chapter 11. So Luke chapter 11 is getting us into, into Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to kind of explore this idea of prayer. Now, if you've been in church all, any part of your life, if you've um, grown up in church, or, or even if you're just somewhat religious, with quotes, then prayer is probably something that you're at least familiar with. It's, a, it's an idea that a lot of us think that we have a, a handle on. It's, it's, a, it's an intimate communication with God. It's actually a form of worship. Prayer is this sort of intentional, intimate moments that God allows us to communicate directly with him. It's an incredible gift. It is a form of worship. And I think a lot of us don't really approach prayer as sort of being this vital part of our Christian lives, the most important part of what we do, that communication, that intimacy with God. There was a 19th century uh, Norwegian 
kind of philosopher, theologian named O'Halsby, who said that, that prayer is the breath of our soul. It's the vehicle by which, right, the vehicle by which we usher Christ into our parched and withered hearts. And as I think about that kind of intentionality and intimacy, I think that a lot of us are haphazard in our prayer life. We just, when we need things, when we're caught, when we are stuck between stuff, we cry out to God for help, for rescue, but very seldom do we see prayer as the vehicle by which we usher Christ into our dry and dying and withered and parched hearts. That prayer is this tool of revitalization by by which we have access to God himself. And so this morning we're going to look at it and sort of the importance of prayer in the Christian life. And I know that all of us here here say, no, no, prayer is important. But I want to show you what Jesus says about it. And hopefully it will change the way that we approach our own prayer life, both corporately and individually. Now, each Sunday, we've been kind of taking these texts and exploring them through a, an anchor point or through a, a word that we would use as sort of um, a, a place that we could hold our context together. And we've explored texts like, we've explored words like worship and obedience and hope and salvation and gospel. And last week, we explored surrender. And this week, obviously, the word we're using is prayer because it's a word that should shape and move our entire Christian experience. So if you've uh, got your Bible, I want you to flip to Matthew chapter 6. And uh, we're going to open together in prayer, and then we will uh, dive into 6, starting in verse 5. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the moment to gather here together, these just intimate moments that we have as a community, uh, people gathered from all walks of life, Lord. Some, uh, Father, have been coming for several years, some today as their first, Lord. Some have been in churches since they were born, some may have just ventured for the first time this month. Who knows, God, but you draw us all together in the exact same manner because you want to move in our lives. And, and God, you meet us exactly where we are in the middle of our struggles and fears, in the middle of our triumphs and joys, in the middle of our sort of passionless or our, our hearts that are longing for you or in the middle of our, our moments of great glory. God, you meet all of us where we are, and it's so unique, Father, the way that you address our personal lives. Yet you do it in this moment where we can all be together. So, Lord, we take this time seriously and we open your word. We deeply believe that your word is an encounter, having an encounter with your word is having an encounter with you. That God, scripture as we have it is not just some promise book for our life by which we can take what we want and sift through the other things. But, God, it is the very kind of passionate pour out of your soul into our hearts. And so, God, we take it very seriously. We believe that having that encounter with your word is having an encounter with you. So teach our hearts this morning about prayer. Lord, help us, whatever our thoughts about prayer, just let those things fall to the side for just a moment that we might have our eyes open and enlightened in a new way as you teach us individually and corporately. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something fresh or new this morning. Just something simple like that. God, teach me something fresh or new. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you, you don't know them, even if you've never seen them. Just venture out a little bit. Be in the habit of praying for somebody else. Just whisper something to the Lord. That person might be moved this morning, might encounter God this morning. Just pray for someone else. Lord, we love you. We turn this entire morning over to you. Father, you are everything. You are the the very nature by which all things hold together. And so, God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning and you would move in us and be glorified even as we open your word together. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our rescuer, our redeemer. 
redeemer, our love in our life. Amen. So Matthew chapter 5 and 6, there's a lot of echoes in Luke chapter 10 and 11. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's the largest recorded discourse of Jesus that we have in all of Scripture. It's not necessarily really a sermon, though. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it actually began as a small group teaching. So Jesus saw these massive crowds, because I, I t- I've told you this a bunch, everywhere Jesus went, people showed up in the droves by the thousands. And so Jesus saw the crowds, and he withdrew to a mountainside, and he sat up on the side of that mountain with his disciples, and he began to teach these 12 disciples. And the crowd slowly found its way to Jesus. And the next thing you know, there's this massive crowd, and Jesus is teaching. And, and his teaching really was geared towards the disciples to demonstrate what a life that followed him would have to look like. So the Sermon on the Mount, as we know, has got all kinds of things from how to handle money, prayer, adultery, uh, taking oaths, all kinds of things about a follower of Christ's life. And so it's a, a sort of picture of discipleship, if you will. And Matthew, or Luke 10 and 11 is an echo of, of that Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew captures it all in one place. And he does a pretty amazing job kind of opening its depth. And so that's why we're moving from Luke 11 to Matthew chapter 6. Same text, but a little deeper um, and a little bit more detailed in the book of Matthew. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip over there. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 5, and we're going to go all the way down through 13. As we focus on this idea of prayer, what does Jesus have to say about the most intimate form of communication, about worship that we have with the Father? This is what he says. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Very famous, obviously, teaching on text. The section in there that Jesus teaches on how to pray is what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's the, the most sort of famous and most kind of agreed upon uh, formula, if you will, for prayer in all of Christianity, right? Because it's Jesus' words himself. Most of us have grown up with some element of the Lord's prayer in our worship life as a church, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But Jesus takes a unique approach as he begins to talk about prayer because he starts off by talking about how not to pray, which is kind of what I find really interesting. And he gives a couple of different scenarios. And the first of those scenarios, he talks about praying not to be seen. And it's really a bigger picture about motives, because chapter 6 is really all about motives. Chapter 6, 1, he says, he talks about being careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men as to be seen by them, right? In six sixteen, he talks about when you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do when they disfigure their face to show people that they're fasting. In, the, in Matthew chapter 6, 5, where we just were, he says, when we pray, you don't stand on a street corner like the religious hypocrites that do so they can be seen by people. All of chapter 6 really is about the motives that move our spiritual life, right? And so when he talks about prayer, Jesus is saying, look, prayer is not about a motive that should be driven to be seen by people. 
Now, I think most of us in here, if I were to pin you down, would say, well, I'm good there because the last thing I even like to do is pray in front of people. Like, I am not that person that likes to do that at all. And so my motives are really pretty good when it comes to that, not to be seen by men or by people. Like, I don't want to be seen praying at all. In fact, when we go to small group Bible study and they ask me to pray, I like sort of freak out a little bit, right? Because I get all this anxiety. What if I say it wrong? And so most of us are saying, well, motives really aren't my big issue. And I want to kind of open that up just a tiny bit and say, you know, I think that motives in our spiritual life play a huge role. And maybe not in our prayer life, but if you take all these categories together, acts of righteousness or the things that we do to be seen by them, you know, when we give to a a charity, we give with a big giant check or whatever, I mean, or the way that we let people know sometimes that we're kind of involved or doing spiritual things because we want people to look at our lives and see something significant. All of us do. Every single one of us wants people to look at us and say, man, I like that person. We are driven by our motives. We want to be seen by people. Now, a lot of us have uh, bigger issues with this than others, but the reality is motive drives our life culturally. The things that we do culturally and engage in relationship or at work are all driven by our desire to be recognized. I mean, think about even in your own marriage, right? When you do something for your spouse, you want them to know that you've done it. Like when I go wash Meredith's car for her, I need her to say, hey, thank you for washing my car. If not, what will I say? Hey, did you see your car's clean, right? Because I need her to know. It's like that classic Seinfeld episode about the tip jar where if someone doesn't see you put the tip in the tip jar, then it doesn't count. So George has to reach his hand back in there and take it out, try to make it make noise. So the guy looks over his shoulder. So you get credit for the tip. Because it's not just about putting money in the tip jar, it's about being recognized as you do it. At work, it's the same way. What good is it to go about a project that you spent weeks working on if your boss or bosses don't recognize your effort for it? Our culture is driven by the need to be recognized in order to gain some kind of merit. Is it that crazy to think that that pours over into our spiritual life? It's not. Our motives in our spiritual life are driven by either our desire to perform for God or to perform for people. We want God to know that we are trying. We want people to know that we are trying. And so we demonstrate that out in our spiritual life. And Jesus is basically saying this whole chapter, motive makes a huge difference. And he says, when you pray, don't stand on the street corner like those kind of religious people that that sort of just make you see that they are praying. Oh man, that guy's really spiritual. He's raising his hands during worship or whatever. Doing this driven by motive so that we could be seen. But he says, instead when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And the the motive there really is about relationship. And that's why I mentioned earlier that prayer is sort of this most intimate form of communication with God. Because it's not about what we do to be seen, but instead about the God that we know. Prayer is an invitation for us to know the very heartbeat of God. And so Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And I don't think it's a rhetorical statement. I think literally Jesus is bringing us to a place where we would have a relationship with the Father. The greatest thing about, well, I'll take this back. One of the greatest things about the life of Christ is that through Christ's death and resurrection, we now have access to God. Jesus becomes our mediator so that we have direct access to the Father. We no longer have to go through another mediator. We have direct access to God, and prayer is a vehicle by which we are ushered into his presence. And so Jesus says, go in your room and shut the door. So, so we've got this don't pray to be seen, right? So it's about motive. What does your prayer life look like? Is it, is it just a bunch of things you shout out to God or is it an intimate moment where you get to know the very heartbeat of who God is? 
motive? What's the motive? The second thing that we see Jesus say about how not to pray comes out of verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Now, I think this is really just kind of about the idea of when we pray, we're not called to play games, but to live in authenticity, to be authentic. And I think we do this really in two ways, right? It's in the what we say category and in the what we don't say category. And the what we say category really falls into this. We think that the way that we use language sometimes matters, right, and how we pray. And so we tend to try and craft our prayers to make them sound like we know what we're talking about, even when it's just us and the Lord. You know, we're like God of the, the babbling brook and the sparrows that sing songs in the April morning. We know that you hold the very rainbows in your hand. And God, you know I'm trying really hard. And uh, so if you could just hear me. Right? I mean, we do that. And we've been around other people that kind of, we feel the need to craft that because we think if we can just say it correctly, right, then somehow God honors the effort. And we do that with a lot of our spiritual life. We think that if we just give it the good old college try, God will honor the effort. And so he says, listen, it's not about what you say, right? It's not about how you say it. And we could play that game with God, thinking that if I just say it in the way where he knows I'm giving it my best effort, even when I failed, hey, God, you know I've really blown it here. But I've tried really hard. I mean, for three weeks I've been working on this. I haven't been able to make it to church. But we explain ourselves away. As if God was like, oh, that's why. I didn't know. I had no idea. I didn't realize you were so busy. Sorry. You know, I mean, we do that with our words. And then the second thing is really the things that we don't say. Because very few of us practice full disclosure with God all the time, right? The great irony is that we all know that God knows everything. Even if we read scripture, we can see that he knows every moment of our past and our future. God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He knows everything. But, but we don't like to clue God into everything when we pray because when we do, it becomes very real. And so we very seldom practice full disclosure. We tell God what we think he wants to hear, what we're comfortable saying. Because when we audibly say those things out loud, even in our own prayer life, they become real, and that's petrifying. And so most of us will never go before the Lord, or very soon go before the Lord and go, God, I'm struggling with the fact, when I'm struggling with whether or not you're even real, I feel empty and abandoned. I feel like you are nowhere to be found. We would, most of us would never venture to say that because we're petrified, even though we know God knows that we're feeling things like that. We won't go before him with those. The reality is, is that prayer is, an, is a form of intimacy. It's about motive, and, and it's about being authentic. Do you think God doesn't know that you're petrified? That God doesn't know that you're deeply afraid of what comes next? About how lonely you feel? About how abandoned you feel? God knows every emotion that you have. He created all that spectrum of emotions. He knows what you're experiencing. God's desire, right, is for us to know his will. Prayer is not so that we can inform God about the things going on in our life. God knows. Listen to verse 8. Verse 8, Jesus says this, do, do not be like them, those other people, right? For God, your Father, knows what you need before you even ask him. God knows. Most of us think our prayer life is to inform God about the things happening in our life. The reality is God knows everything. If he already knows, then what is prayer for? It's for us and God developing this intimate relationship where we surrender our will to his will. And Jesus starts off by saying, look, prayer, right? There's a couple of ways that you don't want to do this. You want to live in a way where you're authentic and your motive is pure because this is your communication your intimate relationship with the Father, it's where it begins. 
If you're lacking intimacy in your relationship with Christ, if you're passionless, if you feel like it's been a long time since you've had that connection with God, I can promise you it's centered around your lack of prayer life. That's where we draw intimacy from God. And it's not because we're letting God know the things that are going on with us. It's when God reveals himself to us. Changes our way of thinking. So Jesus says this. He goes on to say, and this is how you should pray, right? Very, and I think most of us are familiar with this, but I want to work through it line by line a little bit because I think it's, there's some incredible things in here. So Jesus says, don't pray like this, right? Don't do those things. Don't play games. Don't be driven by a false motive. Just be honest before the Lord. And this is how you should pray. And he gives this incredibly succinct yet ridiculously complex and powerful prayer that most of us have just sort of taken as an afterthought in our Christian lives. This is what he says. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Now, I don't know how many of us actually think about God as a father. And it's not a gender thing. It's about relationship. That God is protector and provider and safeguard. And I don't know if the idea of father brings about an amazing thought in your mind or if it brings about a, a thought of abandonment or if it brings about a thought of, of, a, of a not so good memory. But none of those things should change that God is the perfect example of what this relationship is meant to be. For all that my dad was, and I love my dad, and for all that he wasn't, God is the perfect picture of all of that. And so when we address God the Father, we're not, refer we're not referring to God the Father of Jesus. We're talking about a relationship that is designed around protection and provision and safeguard. The perfect example of what a heavenly father looks like is not the reflection of an earthly father. Earthly fathers are failures, right? They fall short. They make mistakes. God is the perfect example of what that relationship should be. So whatever your issues are, with that idea, it shouldn't be captured in our lack of understanding about who God is. And so Jesus says that when we pray, we pray to a Father who is perfect, who encapsulates all that relationship, who is a safeguard and a protector and a provider in the most pure and perfect sense of the word. So he says, our Father who is in heaven, our Father in heaven. Now, there's something interesting about that word heaven in the Greek. It's actually a plural word, all right? It actually is, is heavens, or really, our Father who is in the heavenlies is how it translates best. And those, translating it as a singular word is actually does an incredible disservice. Because when we think about heaven, we think about this distant cosmic place somewhere beyond the sun and the moon and the sky, like up there somewhere, and that is where God dwells. So our Father who is up in heaven somewhere... When I pray to you that you might hear me and step in and have some kind of interaction with me. But the reality is that word, idea of heavenlies, is actually translated the same exact word just a few verses later as the very air or sky that we take in. Really what that word means is all the atmosphere that is around us. The heavenlies, the air, the sky. So if you think about it in those contexts, in terms of how it's truly kind of defined, we're saying our Father who dwells in the very air that I breathe, in the heavens, in the everywhere, God who is accessible and knowable and all around us, which coincides exactly theologically with the idea that God is everywhere. God doesn't just sit up high on the heavens somewhere and judge us for all our mistakes and then we cry out to him, he has enough pity and he steps into our lives for that one moment and moves. But that God's presence is all around us. It is in the very heavens, the heavenlies, the air that we draw in, the breath that we breathe. God's presence 
is everywhere. And so what Jesus is saying is saying when we pray, we should pray to the perfect picture of a father who is a safeguard, protector, and provider, who is everywhere and accessible and knowable. Our God the Father who is in the heavenlies. Changes the perspective a little bit. Hallowed be your name. Not really a word we use that often, but hallowed really just means honored, respected, treasured, holy. So your name, Father, God, is treasured, is hallowed, is powerful, is to be revered. And I've mentioned this a dozen times, but we've turned our relationship with God, or even our relationship with Christ, into this sort of irreverent buddy Jesus friendship thing. Where God sort of walks and just sort of pals around with us, and, and Jesus is our best friend buddy, but very seldom do we realize that he is holy, majestic, mighty, awe-inspiring God who hung the very cosmos with his words. That holds life in the very palm of his hand, and that's what Jesus is saying. How honored and treasured and holy is your name. And one of the things that we are called to remember as followers of Christ is that God is God and demands reverence and respect. And he is all-powerful and mighty and holy. And yes, he is knowable, but he is holy, perfect God. The God, our Father, perfect picture of that, who dwells in the very air that we breathe and all around us. How reverend and how hallowed is your name. How holy is your name. It's a way we set ourselves up before God. What Jesus is saying is this is the God that we address, that we've been invited into relationship with, a God who is perfect, a God who is to be revered and honored and respected, who dwells in everything around us. This is who we pray to. We don't pray to some distant, far-off God who's unknowable. We don't pray to a God that pals around with us and is kind of like, oh, I'm sorry that you made that mistake. Like We are praying to a God who is broken at our sinfulness because of his perfection and his holiness. So God, our Father, who dwells in the very heavenlies, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what that line basically is saying? Jesus talked about the kingdom of God in three ways. He talked about the kingdom of God that, that was. He talked about the kingdom of God that, that is now. And he talked a lot about the kingdom of God that is to come. The idea of the kingdom of God is that we've got our own kingdoms established. And it is how I see my life and my world. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are actually praying that God's kingdom would come and disrupt, interrupt, and move out my kingdom. That God, your kingdom, would come take the place of what I have established for myself right here on earth as it already is in the heavenlies, right? As it already is in heaven. And your will be done. This line is a line about surrender. It's a lot about saying, God, I want what your will is, even above my own kingdom, even above my own desire to establish my own kingdom mindset for my own life. I want your will to be done. It's a line about surrender. Most of us are petrified to pray this because we want our will to be done in our lives in the manner in which we see fit. And when we get into trouble, we call upon God to rescue our will, to reestablish our will so that it gets our plan back on track. This line is saying, God, I want you to displace what I want for what you want. I want your will to be done. Give us today our daily bread. That line basically just means, God, give me what I need today. Notice what it doesn't say. God, give me my bread for the whole year or for all of retirement. Most of us have a very 
small daily reliance upon the Lord. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be kind of preparing for the future. But what if we actually approach the Lord like, God, just give me what I need for today. Both food-wise and kind of protection-wise, but emotionally. Like, just let me breathe and live for you today. We're so concerned with what we don't have for forever, we forget that God is a God who wants to provide for us in this waking moment. So God, will you give me what I need today to live, to survive, to find joy right now in this moment? And I find this incredibly profound because most of us have prayed this prayer a thousand times in churches and have never really meant it. We've never really meant, God, give me just what I need today. Most of us can't live that way. We're too petrified to actually live day by day for the Lord. Day by day relying on God to show up that day and how we were going to eat, how we were going to be clothed, how we were going to live. We want God to show us the whole picture. And then we'll begin to trust him when God reveals that this is how this job's going to work out. And this is what we're going to do. And this is how you're going to have this and have that. And then we can be like, man, God is so good. But when God provides for us in that one moment, very seldom that we say, God, you are amazing. We say, God, where's the rest? This prayer is basically saying, give us today, right now, in this moment, our daily bread. Meaning that it will come again tomorrow. And I will trust you again tomorrow. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, most of us have grown up with either one of two versions of that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We've we've grown up with one of those two translations, but neither of those words, debts or trespasses, actually capture what that Greek word means. It's a word that means guilty, right? It's got a, a guilty connotation about it. So it's really saying, God, forgive our guilt, The things that we've done, our sin, our debts, our trespasses, we are absolutely guilty because of our sinfulness as we forgive those who are guilty against us. Now, most of us make this prayer cry of our heart. God, forgive me. Forgive me where I have failed you, where I have have debts against you, where I have trespassed, where I have sinned, where I have fallen short. But very few of us can replicate that in the second part of this prayer. As we forgive those that have done that same thing to us. Every single day that we wake, we break God's heart with our sin. We are sinful from the things that we think to the actions that we do. The reality is, we are sinful people. And a daily prayer that we believe that God will forgive those is where we hang and where we live. But yet, most of us have someone in our life that we haven't forgiven or that we are resentful for. A lot of times, it's someone that we're close to. That we've held this thing for so long, yet we come to God and we say, forgive me. And we rely in our desperate need of God's forgiveness. But the second part of that prayer that says, as we forgive those. Now listen, forgiving those people is not the prerequisite to get God's forgiveness. It's not like we have to go and forgive them and then God will forgive us. But it's a responsibility. Then once we've experienced a saving grace and freedom that comes from a God that forgives all of our sinfulness, the responsibility is we are called to live that way as followers of Christ. Which means we do not have the right to hold grudges and be resentful and not forgive because of how God has lavished his forgiveness upon us. And I know that your situation is complicated and I know that you have been hurt and that you have been wounded and you have been abandoned. And I am sorry, but has it changed the responsibility? Because you have done all of those things and more to the God that made you. A 
And he continues through Christ to free you and forgive you. Some of us have got to deal with this idea of forgiveness. We've got to make a phone call. We've got to spend time with someone. And we have to come to a place where we just let it go. Because God has freed us. And the responsibility then as followers of Christ is to free that person from the guilt. Which is what that word means. So, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Basically, the end of that is, don't lead me into a place where I'm going to face temptation. But deliver, and that word really means rescue. Rescue me from the evil one. Not evil in general, like bad things. It's actually a reference to the enemy. It's a reference to the very real reality that there is an enemy that wants to rob and steal your life. John 10.10 puts it this way. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. The reality is there is an evil one. And he wants to rob your life of joy. He wants to steal everything that you've worked for. I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking about spiritually. And this prayer is saying, God, I I need to recognize that reality. And I need you to not lead me in that place, but deliver me and rescue me from the hands of the one that's trying to rob my life. Most of us have grown up with an ending on this prayer that says, you know, deliver us from the evil one, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Which is not, it's not in these manuscripts because it was at, it seems to be a much later edition, but the reality is it's a really powerful way to wrap that up. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When I think about this prayer and I actually break down these lines, I think how misguided my prayer life has been for so much of my whole life. It is so me-centered. It's so driven by God, what you need to do for me, what can you do for me, how are you going to bail me out, how are you going to get me out of this situation, that situation, how are you going to fill my heart? Me, me, me. But when you look at this, and not as a formula, but as an explanation about God being our Father, the perfect Heavenly Father, who dwells all around us, that I would pray that his kingdom would displace my kingdom, that he would displace my selfishness, that I would surrender my life, that he would provide for me on a daily basis and I would trust that. That as I'm forgiven, I would be able to forgive the people around me and that he would deliver me from the temptation to follow the father of lies. What if our prayer life truly echoed what Jesus said? It would revolutionize how we know and how we approach God. Jesus takes very seriously the opportunity to spend time with the Father. We see him all the time in in the Gospels, withdrawing to solitary places where he prayed. What does your prayer life look like? Is it simply you crying out to God before meals or when you need things or to fill this or fill that or whatever? Or is it an echo of what you truly truly believe about who God is? Each month, we try and take a moment as a community where we gather together and just pray. We just shout some things out, and we lift those things up together, and this is a perfect Sunday for us to do that. And we do it just by means of, if you've got something you'd like us to pray for as a community, a, a concern, a hurt, a, you, don't, you know, whatever it is, we just sort of holler them out, and I jot them down, and we pray for it. It's a way that we can continue to live in community, a community that, that exists to know and be known and I'm not asking you to sit here and kind of like lob out your deepest, darkest, whatever. Just if you have something that you'd like to be lifted up and for us to pray for, 
we take moments as a community to do that, and then we'll be closed, we'll pray over those things, and then we'll close our, our time in worship. And the way that works is I just sort of kind of jot these things down, and then we just sort of uh, pray over them together, and then we'll close our time um, this morning in worship. So.